We're in the midst of a significant economic emergency. And you heard this again from the chair of the Fed saying in the absence of additional support from the federal government, we could really see a prolonged recession, potentially even a depression. Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy questions about new technologies. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the future of work, the changing nature of work and labor markets, and how to best prepare people and societies for the jobs of the future, and among the also the critical policy questions that policymakers will have to face in coming years. Rob, you worked on a huge study a couple of years ago comparing the dynamics of future of work around the world, and it made the case for agile public policies that are tailored to specific countries, regions, and even individuals. And you've written a lot about how policymakers should focus on helping displaced workers. Yeah, and right now the COVID crisis is is obviously adding a new and unfortunate wrinkle to this. It's straining uh, labor markets. It's going to change how labor markets work. It's going to change the kinds of jobs we have. And so this is really a critical question now. So I'm really looking forward to uh, talking this through with today's guest. Congressman Derek Kilmer has served as U.S. Representative for Washington's 6th Congressional District since 2012. He serves on the House Appropriations Committee and is chair of the House New Democrat Coalition. Rob and I are both big fans and are thrilled he's here to chat with us. Welcome, Congressman. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you both. So you chair a caucus called the New Democrat Coalition in the House. It's a group ITIF has been working with for years, but it's little known outside of the Beltway, despite its size and its influence. Can you talk a little bit about the coalition and its priorities? Yeah, you bet. So the New Dem Coalition is a coalition of 104 members of Congress. It's pro-innovation, pro-growth, more pragmatic Democrats. We are currently the largest ideological coalition in the House. To your point, we're, we're not always leading cable news since it's often the louder voices that, that are covered on, on cable news. But we're, we're called the New Democrats because we're really focused on looking at old problems through a new lens. You know, so rather than is often the case for discussions around our economy, rather than debating how to distribute or redistribute the economic pie, our main focus is trying to make sure that we grow the economic pie for everybody and making sure that every American has an opportunity to earn a slice of it. You know, rather than looking at government as either always the problem or as the solution to every problem, our focus is how do you reinvent government to make sure that government is doing a better job of solving problems on behalf of the American people. And to the point of today's conversation, you know, really one of the pillars for the new Dems has been trying to figure out how to make sure that um, Americans have an opportunity to earn a good living. And in the midst of disruptive economic change, how do we empower people to navigate that change rather than to be victims of it? One of the reasons why there's so much focus and discussion of, of the future work is because there's a whole set of new technologies. What, what I called in a recent report, CAI, Connected, Autonomous, and Intelligent, this suite of 5G, Internet of Things, Autonomous Systems, Robots, and, and obviously AI. So this has been an important issue for the new Dems. In fact, you have a special working group looking at this. Can you say a little bit more about that, why you're focusing on that, and what are the kinds of things you're looking at, and what are the kinds of things you hope to do legislatively? I often think about this through the lens of my life. 
you know, when I was a little kid growing up in Port Angeles, Washington, uh, which is a logging town on the coast, my dad and I would go hiking and he liked to take photographs. We would stop by Kit's camera in Port Angeles. We'd buy a bunch of Kodak supplies. We'd go out into the woods and take nature photographs and things like that. Now, all these years later, Kit's camera doesn't exist anymore. Kodak now employs 4% of what it employed when I was a kid. And it's not necessarily bad change in that all of us have cameras on our phones now. We, by and large, don't print our photos anymore. We post them. But it was really disruptive if you owned Kit's camera or if you worked at Kodak. You know, my first job, Rob, I don't know if you know this, my first job was at a video store, Westside Video in Port Angeles. For those listeners who are younger, we used to have these things called video stores. It really bums me out that the words, be kind, please rewind, mean nothing to my daughters because they live in this extraordinary world of Netflix and YouTube and on demand and, and Prime and all, you know, un, Instagram, unlimited content at their fingertips. Again, not necessarily a bad thing, but it was bad if you owned West Side Video or if you worked there. You know, even I think about after my kids were born, our Sunday tradition was we went to our church, go to a Methodist church, and then we would go to Borders Bookshop and let our kids tool around in the kids section. And my wife and I would sit upstairs drinking coffee and sometimes we'd buy a book and sometimes we wouldn't. But when my kids were born, there were 36,000 people in this country working at one of 1,400 Borders Bookshops. And now there are zero. And again, it's not necessarily change that is necessarily bad and that people have unlimited content faster than ever, but really, really disruptive. And so part of the focus of the new Dems is, I think, an understanding that you can't stop that change, but you have to figure out how to empower people to navigate that change. And I think it's something that sets us apart as economic thought leaders in the Congress to make sure all Americans have the opportunity to earn a good life. We put forward a, an economic opportunity agenda that was called the Future That Works, and it really seeks to empower Americans, it focuses on trying to close the skills gap and the opportunity gap, tries to kind of reformulate the 21st century social contract so that we look at things like portable benefits and try to provide a better way of empowering workers. So on the skills and opportunity gap, for example, we've looked at new tools to help people adapt to highlight their own experiences and talents, ways to lean on our career and tech ed systems, more opportunities to provide training for early and mid-career workers so that we can upskill uh, people or that they can change occupations when, when a new opportunity arises. These are some of the things that, that, that we've really been working at as a coalition. You mentioned uh, Blockbuster. I remember the first time I ever went to a Blockbuster where I was visiting my best friend out in California and we were out there for a Friday night and he, I, he took me to this place. I was like amazed. Oh my gosh. My my favorite podcast besides in, ITIF's Innovation Files. Well, and the congressman's. Yeah. And my, and my podcast. My third favorite podcast. <laughs> it's, it's called Business Wars. And one of my favorite uh, series was on the, the fight between Netflix and Blockbuster. And it really showed how Blockbuster sort of missed the boat on that. They, they could have really been the Netflix. Now, that probably wouldn't have done a lot for all the workers, but it would have had a little bit less disruption. I wanted to ask you, though. You know, you mentioned part of the navigation of all this. It seems like one of the big challenges in, in the U.S. as we've become more of a knowledge economy in the last you know two or three decades, where if you have a college degree, you're doing pretty well. There was a new study in the Washington Post today showing that college graduates have done 
less worse in, in the COVID crisis uh, because of the nature of the jobs they have. But the Trump administration recently announced a, a proposal that we had made about two years ago. I, I think it was they had gotten it from us, so I was pleased about that. And that was to allow OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, to hire on the basis of skills and competencies, not on the basis of degrees. This is something that companies like IBM and, and, and I think a number of banks have done and it's a way to basically open up the labor market so that if you've got the skills and, and, the, and the competency, if you don't have to get a college degree, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, on that idea. Yeah, it's a component of what the New Dems have looked at. And I, I would invite folks who are listening, we have on the New Dem Coalition's website, our agenda called the future of, of work. But it's a component of that. I think there's a recognition that we need to be valuing knowledge and capability, not seat time. And the most clear example of that has been with folks coming out of the military, where they have extraordinary skills, extraordinary talents that aren't always embraced and acknowledged by private industry just because they haven't necessarily checked a specific box that is often on a job description. And, and we're really trying to pivot that so that employers are looking at knowledge and capabilities, not just, not just seat time. And you introduced legislation to help workers access skills training programs, which you alluded to earlier, but this included retraining. And I think we'd love to hear a little more about that specific piece, if you don't mind. Yeah, I've introduced a couple bills on this front, both of which are bipartisan. You know, the first is called the Skills Investment Act, and it's really targeted towards helping workers deal with the kind of economic disruption that we're, we're, we're chatting about. My dad was a school teacher. He taught for 50 years. And the days in which someone starts a job and is in the same job for 50 years are probably over, or at least it's a really uncommon thing. And so the Skills Investment Act basically uses an idea called lifelong learning accounts that function almost like a health savings account or a 401k, but focused on workforce training, where the employer would pay in, the employee would pay in, both would see some tax benefit for it, and the worker could use it so that if the nature of their job was changing, they could go pursue additional training. If they were in an entry-level position and wanted to work their way into a higher-paying role, they could do that. They could go take night classes at the local community college, or if they lost their job, they could pull upon that account to get retrained. And again, consistent with what the new Dems have put out with regard to the future of work, part of our idea is to have portable benefits that, that attach to the worker, even if their relationship with their employer doesn't persist. So that's one bill that we've we've put forward. And I, I actually think that's the type of thing, given that we need to be looking at how people who are already in the labor market can navigate economic disruption. I think that could be really helpful. The other bill that we just put forward in the midst of COVID was a bill called the Skills Renewal Act. You heard the chair of the Fed express concern that workers could see skills erosion because they've not been using their skills for a long period of time. And though a lot of workers may see their jobs come back, unfortunately, many won't. And I think it is a good and important question for government to be asking, how do we make sure that those workers aren't just left behind? How do we re-empower them? And so we have a bill that would provide some assistance for them to pursue retraining so that they can hopefully get attached into a new job with good wages, good benefits, and a good future. Those are all fantastic and other parts of that package as well, which we've read with great interest and admiration. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is ITIF came out with a comprehensive 
package uh, of what we think national skills and readjustment systems should look like. And w- one of the frustrations for us is you look at other countries, and not not every country, but you look at a place like Singapore. Oh my gosh, they're like a global model. They, they, they have this down to a science. Countries like France started a new training voucher program, a little bit like what you're proposing. A, a lot of countries are really taking this seriously and moving forward. And it, it's been frustrating to us that we haven't seemed to be able to make that much progress here. Our, our system, frankly, isn't all that good compared to the best systems in the world. It's parts of it that work okay. I'm just wondering, sort of, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, why do you think that's the case? And, and, and are you hopeful that perhaps we could make some meaningful reforms in the next year or two? It's one of the rare areas where Democrats and Republicans agree with the value of the investment right? Workforce development is a real winner. I mean, to your point, you know, listen, not every job is going to require an advanced degree, but we do know that as educational attainment goes up, so does the likelihood that someone's employed rather than unemployed. So do wages. In my state, if you're a high school dropout, these numbers are probably about a decade old. I have to get an update to them. But as of 10 years ago, if you were from my state, if you had dropped out of high school, you were 17% of my state's population. You're, you were 55% of my state's prison population. And I think almost without exception, when we engage our constituents, they would much rather invest on the front end in providing people with educational opportunities and opportunities to develop their skills than on the back end in unemployment and in prisons. But that's a decision we make every time a state or the federal government passes a budget. And I think for far too long, there has been an inadequate investment in our workforce development system. And listen, even looking at leveraging apprenticeship programs, our community technical college systems can really be an extraordinary way to enhance the likelihood that someone's able to navigate economic change rather than to be victimized by it. And the COVID crisis brought home that an economic crisis can hit unexpectedly. And while Congress took historic action, it took time for these policies to take effect. And it's not clear that Congress will act again in time in the near future. You and the New Dems put forward the concept of automatic stabilizers. Can you say more about this and what it would look like and do? Yeah, let me start with the problem we're trying to solve. I think as we've dealt with this pandemic, it's really hard not to think about the scene from Jaws where, you know, Brody leans over the boat and sees the shark and walks into the boat's cabin and says to the skipper, we're going to need a bigger boat. And that has really been played out over the last several months. The very first coronavirus response bill was an $8.8 billion bill and was considered substantial when Congress passed it. The CARES Act, in contrast, was well over a trillion dollars, and yet we're seeing persistent need. And so, unfortunately, just the staggering impact of this virus on our communities increases on a daily basis, and that's been the trend over the last few months. And the federal government has really struggled to keep up with the needs that we're seeing, certainly in my region and all across the country. And so, What we have proposed as a coalition is, in essence, a bigger boat so that what we've suggested is, as you referenced, automatic stabilizers or or triggers so that the assistance that's provided from the federal government continues as long as negative economic conditions persist. So what am I talking about? Unemployment compensation. You look at the crisis of 08 
And Congress voted 13 separate times to extend unemployment help from the federal government, 13 separate times. And what that meant was before each of those votes, there was brinkmanship, there was uncertainty. States have no idea and unemployed workers have no idea whether additional help is on the way. What we've proposed is let's just build some rules of the road into the game at the front end. So if we know these are the conditions, so for example, with regard to uh, unemployment assistance, Don Beyer and I've worked on a bill called the Worker Relief and Security Act, which would in essence say emergency unemployment insurance assistance would continue through the national health emergency And then benefit extensions and additional payments would vary based on the circumstances that we're seeing on the ground in states across our country. We've been looking at this not just with regard to unemployment compensation. We've looked at this with regard to nutrition assistance, with regard to aid to states and and to health providers. Our view is that automatic stabilizers, listen, we're in the midst of a really uncertain time. And you know, families need to know, small businesses need to know that they're not going to just be left without help. And automatic stabilizers basically build in better responsiveness to meet those needs that are on the ground and to provide some predictability for people and for communities in a time of just extraordinary uncertainty. By linking the assistance to the economic conditions, you can provide some certainty that the critical help is going to be there until our economy is on more solid footing. So there were a number of studies looking at the Great Depression of the 30s, and they all have come to the conclusion that one of the reasons it was so bad and so long was there just simply were no automatic stabilizers. And now we have some income taxes that are graduated. We do have unemployment insurance. Your proposal with Congressman Beyer would just strengthen that process. It would make it so that we don't have as deep and as long recessions, besides just helping people. I guess one of the points I think it's important to make here is in, in my mind, this is very different than the debate about the $600 bonus for, for unemployment insurance. That's a separate debate. I think what you're talking about is just simply saying, let's not have to go back and have all this uncertainty that if you're above a certain trigger of whatever the measure is, unemployment or, or some other measure, it's just we're going to have a program. And it would seem to me that's something that both parties could support because for maybe more free market, smaller government advocates or supporters. This is saying this is temporary. Once we get back on normal, it goes away or it goes back to where it was. Well, that I think there is value in recognizing that stabilizers both say when additional dollars should be put in, but also indicate when they should be turned off. And we're in the midst of a significant economic emergency. And you heard this again from the chair of the Fed saying in the absence of additional support from the federal government, we could really see a prolonged recession, potentially even a depression. And I think it is appropriate for policymakers to be thinking about how do you create some certainty in a really uncertain time? To wrap up, what's the technology you're most excited about right now? Well, in the <laughs> uh, in the midst of the uh, in the midst of the pandemic, I'm <laughs> I'm quite tempted to list off every streaming service that my family and I have used. It's uh, and and you may see the Star Wars Pez dispensers over my left shoulder. I, I feel like maybe I should say uh, Disney Plus or something like that because I've been able to stream The Mandalorian with my kiddos. Well, I was going to ask you next, what's your favorite Star Wars movie of all time? Yeah, I'm surprised it took us this long to talk about Star Wars. 
Well, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, I, and I shouldn't be cavalier about your question. Actually, one of the things I, I did want to just share before telling Rob that Empire Strikes Back is my favorite movie. So I, I chair a new committee in Congress. About every 20 or 30 years or so, Congress realizes things aren't working the way they ought to. <laughs> and they create a committee to try to do something about it. And this committee is called the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. You know, and one of the big things that we've looked at is technology. You know, Congress has been described as an 18th century institution using 20th century technology to solve 21st century problems. And I think that's really true. So we've been looking at even just basic things about how members of Congress can use technology to engage their constituents or how technology can be used in the process of drafting legislation. Many state legislatures have figured out how to enable policymakers to see in real time, here's the law that we're changing and here's, you know, here's how what we're proposing would change it. These sorts of things are unfortunately not part of our reality in the nation's capital. And so a lot of my focus right now on technology is how do we leverage technology to have Congress do a better job of meeting the needs and solving problems for the American people? You know, that's a great example of, I think, you know, really critically important work. And I, I followed what you, and I'm sorry, I don't remember your co-chair. Tom Graves. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just great work. And again, it's one of those areas that you know, if you're not in Washington, everybody thinks it's a potbed of uh, partisan hatred. But there's a good example where both sides really are committed to this working it through. So I, I hope there's some real progress there. There's so many opportunities for Congress to use advanced technologies to not only make the process better, but, but also more transparent for the average voter. Yeah, you bet. You bet. That's the idea. And we've, you know, thankfully, we've been a committee that's been able to function in a really bipartisan way. We've now passed more than 45 recommendations, all of which have been unanimous. That's that's rare in D.C., but it's important because people are hungry to see Congress work better. Just last, I just have to say that here we agree 100 percent that Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie. Right. On. And also that I can't wait for a Mandalorian season two. I, I think it is fair to say that this has been a good advertisement for Disney+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for being with us, Congressman. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you, listen to your podcast, follow your tweets? Yeah, I, I am at Rep. Derek Kilmer on Twitter. I'm kilmer.house.gov. We do an email newsletter on a weekly basis now to let folks know what we're, what we're up to. I have a currently somewhat dormant podcast because we, you know, been focused on trying to stick as many fingers and toes in the holes in the dam through the course of this pandemic. And that has uh, put the podcast to sleep for a while. But it is the terrifically entitled Quick Questions About Congress with Kilmer, where I spend about 15 minutes just talking to some of my colleagues about what brought them here and what they focus on and things they think could make the place function a little bit better. And I will tell you, it has the most adorable theme song sung by my then four-year-old daughter. So Aww. it's a winner. I got to tell you, it's a winner. And you can get more cute kid content on your Instagram feed too. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you, Congressman, again. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. That's it for now, but we have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every Monday morning, so we hope you'll tune in next week. <laughs>